Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. With each message and series from Pastors Tim and Nathan, we hope you'll discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. Welcome to Liquid, everybody. Hey, I'm Pastor Tim. So glad you could join us for week two of our series, Skeptics. Welcome. Let's give a big hello to our live locations. Everybody at Church Online, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me in your house and your campuses today. Uh, if you're joining us, this series, we're asking a provocative question. We're saying, hey, is Christianity actually good for humanity? Because there's a lot of skepticism about Christians and the church today. Uh, some say organized religion is harmful to society, like it's too political, or that taking the Bible seriously could lead to backwards thinking, or worse, bigotry. So what we're doing is we're investigating objective evidence, sources outside of the Bible, scholars outside Christianity, to see if sincere faith leads to human flourishing. Now, last week we looked at some eye-opening social data that shows the profound impact Christianity has had on our world. For instance, we found that top 10 hospitals in the United States, notice, 9 out of 10 were founded by sincere Christ followers who took Jesus's command to care for the poor, heal the sick to heart. Look at that, nine out of 10 world-class global research hospitals like the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins were started by committed Christians who just believed that the, the sick and the hurting should receive medical care regardless of their wealth or social status. Essentially, their faith in Jesus was their inspiration for starting hospitals. That's why you see so many hospitals today like St. Luke's or St. Mary's or St. Barnabas or New York Presbyterian. They have Christian names because they had Christian founders inspired by the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So those Christians conclude, well, Caring for the sick and the poor, that's central to Christ's mission, so it must be our mission too. In a similar way, we looked at the 10 best nations for women's rights. And notice they have something in common too. Do you take a look? They all have majority Christian populations, over 75%. Now these are the top 10 nations where women receive higher education, equal pay in the marketplace, voting rights, positions in government and business. And it's all based on this biblical idea that men and women are co-equals in Christ. Again, this isn't a Christian source. This is data from the World Economic Forum. So what's the point? If you have a daughter, you have a sister, you have an aunt or a mother you love, you want her living in a majority Christian nation. On the other hand, if you look at the 10 worst nations for women's rights, all 10 are countries where Christianity has been outlawed or is socially punished. Yemen, Pakistan, Syria, Iran. In these nations, women are denied education. Some are even sold into marriage. If they, 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 if they go outside without a head covering, they can be beaten with a whip. Women are denied voting rights. Some are still of these nations still practice the barbaric ritual of genital mutilation on young girls. It's mind-boggling. All of these nations have outlawed Christianity or they persecute the church. Now, I don't say that to disrespect other cultures. Hear my heart. As Christians, we want to honor and respect all people. But it's very important to acknowledge the objective facts about Christianity. This is a series based on facts, not feelings. And the fact is, historically, wherever Christians take root, human flourishing follows. 
The presence of sincere followers of Jesus dramatically improves society, elevates it for all people, regardless of religious belief. In fact, if you look at the social mosaic, what we've discovered is that the forefront of every major social movement, you will find Christians founding hospitals like Mary Mose, Johns Hopkins, and many more. Ending slavery. This week, we're celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian minister who led the fight for civil rights based on the teachings of Jesus. We're going to look today at some of the other abolitionists who helped end open slavery. Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, William Wilberforce, all passionate Christians who fought for human rights. Uh, next week, we'll see how Christians pioneered medicine. They started universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all originally founded by Christians. Why? To train pastors in the scriptures. They helped pioneer the scientific revolution. You've got Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Johannes Kepler. They were passionate Jesus followers, and their scientific breakthroughs coincided with the Protestant Reformation, elevating education and literacy for all. Think about this, guys. 300 years ago, very few people could read or write. It was only after the Protestant Reformation. What was that? The Christians wanted their families, their children, to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And so they established public schools, and they elevated social literacy in the culture. See, if you look at the historical evidence, Christ followers have been at the vanguard, the forefront of social progress over the last centuries, leading the way and making the world a better place. That's one of the reasons our church, we welcome skeptics. If you're not a Christian, you have your doubts and questions, I want you to know you are welcome here. It is totally fine to kick the tires of Christianity and ask hard questions. We're not going to, you know, strong arm you or anything. We want to have an honest conversation. Now, somebody said to me last week, Pastor Tim, this feels like a college course <laughs> or a TED talk. So let's take a brain break. Turn to your neighbor and say, brain break, <laughs> brain break time. <laughs> you know, I showed you guys a picture last week of, uh, of sea otters, right? Cute and cuddly little guy. Look at him. Ooh, I love sea otters. They're beautiful. Sea otters are what are called a keystone species. In other words, when sea otters are present, all ocean life around them flourishes. But when sea otters are taken out, the ecosystem falls apart. Why? Because look at that picture. Sea otters eat sea urchins, which if you leave them unchecked, they choke out the kelp, destroying food and nutrients for the ecosystem. But whenever you got sea otters present, having their sea urchin sushi, man, they elevate the life of every creature in the ecosystem. The reality is committed Christians are a lot like sea otters. If you look at the historical impact of global Christianity, you will discover that Christians are a keystone species for humanity. And wherever committed Christians really take root, not lip service Christians, committed, human flourishing follows. They elevate the living conditions for all of society. So understand if you're a Christ follower, understand you are a keystone species. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit of the living God, and God has called you to greatness. Amen. He's anointed you to change this broken world for the better. Church, you understand this is our motivation. This is why we dig wells in Africa. So thirsty families can have safe, clean drinking water. This is why our church invests so much energy caring for kids with special needs, because we cherish each one made in the image of God. This is why our church pays to pack and ship a million meals to feed our brothers and sisters in Haiti, like Jesus commanded, because you and I are sea otters. Type it in the chat, I'm a sea otter, I'm a sea otter. You smell like one too. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. What I'm trying to say is we're a church of passionate Jesus followers. It's not because we're good people. It's because we're God's people. 
We are in love with a living Lord. We are empowered by his Holy Spirit, a keystone species committed to human flourishing. Amen? Say amen if you agree. Type in the chat. Jesus is alive, and his story continues today through you and me. So what I want to do today is I want to look at the second channel of social transformation to see what impact Christ flowers had on ending slavery in a message I'm calling Jesus, Justice, and Racial Equality. We're going to look at the people who led that charge. You can see some of their faces on the screen. What did they believe? What, what motivated them? Were, were they motivated by the teachings of Karl Marx? Were they motivated by the teachings of Muhammad? Were they inspired by Islam? Were they all atheists? I, I found myself asking, what's the common motivation for the people who overthrew open and legalized slavery? Well, as you guys know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and Dr. King is probably the most famous champion of racial justice in modern history. And Dr. King was a Christian minister. He's a pastor. And most of what we call his speeches were actually sermons that he preached in church on Sunday, profoundly shaped by the words of Jesus and the Christian Bible. In fact, one of his most famous, Dr. King said this. He said, suppose the teaching of Jesus should be accepted by competing nations of the world, particularly Russia and America. They would no longer compete to see which could make the bigger atom bombs or which could perpetuate its imperialism, but which could best serve humanity. This would be a better world. Dr. King had this fundamental belief that sincere followers of Jesus Christ would actually be the champions of racial justice in our world, but actually follow the nonviolent ways of our Savior. Again, in another speech sermon, at Holt Street Baptist Church, Dr. King said, Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop because God is with this movement. Go home with this glowing faith and this radiant assurance. You know when Dr. King said that? He wasn't just a minister in Ivory Tower. He said that after a bomb was thrown into his house in Alabama in January 1956. Now, you and I know that slavery was officially outlawed in the United States in the 1860s before Dr. King was born. But he really embodied the biblical vision of the abolitionists based again on this biblical idea that all people, all races are created equal by God in his image, created to be free. But the reality is when Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago, slavery was the global norm, not freedom. In Jesus' day, about 40% of the world's population were slaves. Now that may surprise you because if you grew up with a American-centric education like I did, you went to American high school, you may have gotten the impression that slavery was created and perpetrated like only in the United States from the 1600s to the Civil War. But that's not accurate. The facts tell a different story. The reality is slavery has been a global norm in every major civilization tracing back thousands of years. The Roman Empire, well-documented, had slaves, as did China, India, Greece, and Egypt. Historians confirm that slavery was the horrific norm throughout world history rather than the exception. In fact, here's how normal it was. You guys know Aristotle, famous philosopher who lived about 300 years before Jesus. Now, most people today would go, ooh, Aristotle. Now, there's a wise, sophisticated person. But Aristotle said this. 
He who is by nature not his own, but another man's, is by nature a slave. That's how normal slavery was considered in ancient history. Socrates wasn't alone. I mean, uh, Aristotle had Socrates and Plato. They agreed, they argued that slavery is just the natural order of human existence. You know why? Because they looked around all over the world and they said, you know what, every great society has slaves. Therefore, slavery is just like a, a part of the natural order of things, very obvious. Guys, that's the world that Jesus Christ was born into. A world where oppression, captivity, abuse, injustice, it was just considered the norm for almost half the population. Now, with that historical context, if you'll open your Bible to Luke chapter 4, you are about to see why Jesus caused such an uproar in his hometown. Now, this is a gospel that is an eyewitness account of Jesus. There are four of them, and this one is written by a guy named Luke. He was a physician, and here's what Dr. Luke records. He says, Jesus went to Nazareth, that's in Israel, where he had been brought up. This is where he was raised. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So catch this, he's a visiting rabbi. They hand him the scrolls, and Jesus is intentionally searching. He's looking for a specific scripture that encapsulates his mission. And here's, he goes, oh, found it, here it is, ready? Here's what Jesus reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, what's it say, church? Freedom for the prisoners. Everyone say freedom. Freedom. And recovery of sight for the blind. Jesus went on. To set who? The oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What was Jesus's mission? How did he want to introduce himself to friends and family now that he was starting his ministry? He said, I have come to set the captives free. I've come to bring freedom for all those unjustly imprisoned and oppressed. And Jesus's audience would have known this as the slave class. He says, Jesus said, yeah, I've come to liberate those who are falsely imprisoned. Now, I just want you to catch this, guys, because this is an explosive claim. This is an outlandish prediction. People would have heard Jesus say these words and said, are you kidding me, Jesus? Oppression and slavery, that's just the way of the world, man. It's the natural order. And Jesus looked at his friends, all those he grew up with, and he made this impossible prediction in verse 21. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is, what's the word, church? Fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah sent by God Almighty to set the captives free, to break the bonds of the oppressed. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've been to uh, church for, for some time, maybe you heard this passage taught in a spiritual sense, right? That we're all slaves in a metaphorical sense, right? You know that. We're all slaves to addictions and lusts and greed. We're all slaves to our, our pride, our, our sinful passions, but the good news is when, hey, when we believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's how you become a Christian, he breaks those spiritual bonds. And then he gives you his spirit so you have the power to say no to fleshly things and yes to the good things that God wants. And you know what? That's 100% true. But what I want to talk to you about 
is the literal fulfillment of Jesus' prediction here in Luke that his movement of freedom and liberation would ripple out across the entire planet. See, if you were to fast forward 1,830 years from this moment in Luke that Jesus said, I'm come to set the captives free. If you lived in the United States in the 1830s, you'd be in a nation where half the country thinks slavery is morally evil, while the other half still thinks it's okay. There's civil unrest. You think there's unrest in our country right now? A war is about to start in the 1830s, a civil war. And at the time, there was a great battle of ideas or ideologies. But you know what? We know the specific people who led the fight to abolish slavery through the primary evidence, their own firsthand writings, not the Bible, to convince our entire nation that slavery is a horrific evil because we live under a God who is just, a God who has made all people equal in Christ. That in Christ, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians, he said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither what church? Slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that was the biblical basis for the abolitionist argument. Again, don't take my word for it, even secular historians. They would point to evidence like the leading abolitionist newspaper at the time was called The Liberator. Take a look at this, grounded in Christ's teaching. That's the masthead of the anti-slavery newspaper called The Liberator. And it was very popular before, during, and after the Civil War. It actually swayed the minds of millions of people, especially Northerners who had never seen Christianity, and convinced Americans to uproot slavery at any cost. Now the question is, what motivated the men and the women who produced the liberator? Well, I want you to look carefully at that circle in the middle. If you look at the masthead, look in the middle of the logo. Who's standing there? Notice it's Jesus Christ with a cross, and he's standing between a black man who's praying for his freedom and a white man who actually appears to be repenting on the other side. Notice that both men are kneeling. In other words, they're on equal footing because the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Amen? We all need mercy and forgiveness from God for our trespasses. Now, if you look at the words on the highlighted banners, I'll highlight them for you. The words say, I come to break the bonds of the oppressed. Guys, where do those come from? They are Jesus's direct words from Luke chapter four that you just read. It's Jesus saying, together, me and my followers, we're going to set the captives free. And that ribbon along the bottom there, it reads, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the King James version of Matthew 22. Love your neighbor as yourself. You guys know our series is based on the investigative journalism of John Dickerson. Uh, incredible book. So glad so many of you are, 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 um, are grabbing a copy of it. Incredibly helpful to dial in. But Dickerson notes that the reality is that this was a very unique time in history because people in the United States and Europe were actually the first societies in all of history where people could now read for themselves. And that came about because the Protestant Christians, they said, we don't want the church just to tell us what's in the Bible. We want to read the words of Jesus ourselves. And so the King James Bible was like a universal textbook. So when the abolitionists tied their argument to the word of God, you had for the first time in history an entire nation where most people have actually read the Bible for themselves. Time out. Isn't that a novel idea? Can you imagine? Like Americans actually reading and obeying the Bible? <laughs> the abolitionists said, hey, 
We read this, and the Bible commands us to overthrow the evil of slavery, even if we're not part of it. Even if we live on the earth, we don't have slaves. We have to give our lives so Jesus' mission of, of emancipation is fulfilled. And guys, let me tell you something. This book, the Bible, lit the fuse. I want you to imagine a barn full of kindling and a little match. That kindling was a nation who actually knew how to read the Bible for themselves. And the match were the abolitionists who, like a spark in the darkness, said, we will give our lives to end this evil of slavery in Jesus' name. And that message, that message spread like wildfire throughout the United States. It actually began with a group called the Quakers. They were the first group of devout Christians who wrote the first anti-slavery literature in the 1600s. This is before the United States had even become a nation. The Quakers were denouncing the evil of slavery and calling for its end. Let me show you something cool. Again, outside the Bible, evidence. This is a Quaker document. It's one of the earliest written artifacts declaring universal human rights for all people. That had never been heard before. And it quotes Jesus from the Bible no less than eight times. Do unto others, the Quakers wrote, as you would have them do unto you. That's from Luke chapter 6, verse 31. That was the Quaker rallying cry. That was their mantra. We call it the golden rule. Let me show you something cool. The Quakers were so passionate about making the truth of Jesus spread. They actually began producing anti-slavery propaganda coins with that verse stamped on it. Take a look at this Quaker coin. They'd melt down their own silver, their own gold. And on the right side, you see the Quaker mantra from the Gospels, right? Whatsoever ye would that men do to you, do ye even so to them. But on the left side, you see a slave in chains kneeling. And over him is a Bible verse from the New Testament book of Philemon. Come back to me, I'll tell you who Philemon is. Philemon was a slave owner in the New Testament. And by the way, there have been plenty of Christians in history who have abused the Bible, actually used as a justification for slavery, for oppressing people. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes Philemon because he became a Christian. He writes him a letter because one of Philemon's slaves had run away. And guess what? His slave had become a Christian too. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon to say, you've got to welcome your former slave back. And here's what it says. Read these words. It says, no longer as a slave, but say it together, better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Wow! The Quakers stamped those words across this coin. They paid to have these coins made at their own expense and passed out because they believed that both black and white, oppressed and oppressor, were brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? Is that powerful, church? That's, it gives me chills, man. By the way, anyone know why they were called Quakers? It was like kind of a weird name. They were called Quakers because they believed that people should tremble or quake at the word of the Lord. I'm telling you, when the truth of God is unleashed, freedom always follows. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen? The Quakers were radical, man. They sent a tsunami of anti-slavery books and propaganda coins to England. In fact, we have a modern term that was coined by the Quakers huge push to end slavery. It's the word campaign. Can you say that? Campaign. You know where we get that word? Today when somebody campaigns for office or if you campaign for a cause, that term was coined by Quaker Christians campaigning, 
to stamp out the sin of slavery. It had a ripple effect. A young man in London named William Wilberforce, love his name. He was a wealthy lawmaker in Britain, and honestly, he didn't care about slaves. Wilberforce didn't care about human rights because he had constituents who were making a ton of money off of it. But William Wilberforce became a born-again believer, a follower of Jesus. And it so changed him that he looked around at his fellow Britons. And Wilberforce said, you can't call yourself a true Christian unless you're reading the actual words of Jesus and doing what he said. And so he wrote a book called Real Christianity. This book blew up. It was on top of Amazon. <laughs> and over 30 years, it swayed the entire population in England to outlaw slavery and make it illegal. Not only in England, but in all the British territories, including India, which had between 8 and 9 million slaves in the Hindu caste system. So it had a huge global impact. Again, guys, the evidence is clear. There's a pattern. Wherever committed Christians take root, say it together, human flourishing follows. Now, time out. Notice I said committed Christians, not casual Christians. William Wilberforce and the Quakers were committed Christ followers. They actually read the Bible themselves. They took Christ's words to heart, and they committed their whole lives to live out Jesus' mission of freedom and forgiveness for all people. So I'm just telling you, millennials, you are the justice generation. God has called you to greatness. In this world, it needs a new army of Wilberforces, amen? Men and women who actually take seriously the cause of Christ and fight for justice in Jesus' name. Wherever committed Christians take root, human flourishing and freedom follows. Oh, I feel like preaching now. I'm, I'm sorry, just that get you energized? It does to me, man. When I look at this, when I look at the arc of history, sorry, I'm supposed to be dispassionate because this is a series for skeptics. <laughs> so again, it won't just be the Bible. I want to go back to the historical evidence. By the 1830s, slavery had been outlawed in a good portion of the world. The British Empire, the territories, but it still exists in America. This is about 30 years I'm talking about before the Civil War. And there was a group of American Christians who opposed slavery that gathered together in Philadelphia for a historic meeting, and they formed the American Anti-Slavery Society, a group who led the charge to abolish slavery in the States. Now, that's a photo of the original charter, and you'll notice it includes no less than seven scriptures supporting their cause. Liberation verses like Isaiah 58. What's our purpose? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. And the men and women who signed that declaration were brave. They wrote, we realize we may lose our homes. We may lose our fortunes. We may even lose our lives, but we don't fear men. We fear God alone. And when you look at the signers, over half of their signatures actually say the word reverend in front of it because over half were pastors and clergy stirring up their congregations to overthrow slavery because they saw it as spiritual warfare. In fact, go ahead, look at the picture in the middle of their charter. It's actually a Christian warrior strangling the devil. <laughs> this guy's got his hand down the throat of a lion who personifies Satan with the verse, you shall trample the lion and the serpent underfoot. The literal fight against slavery was spiritual warfare to them. And what's amazing is the signers of this are this beautiful mix of black and white Americans, both European 
descended Caucasian Americans, African Americans who had been freed from slavery or bought, they bought their freedom who had been born in the North. One of those signers is the Reverend Theodore Wright, who was born into an orphanage run by Quaker Christians. And though most African Americans at the time, they didn't know how to read, but Wright was actually taught how to read the Bible and he became a highly educated Presbyterian minister. And if you look at each signer of that declaration and you say, well, what inspired them? Were they motivated by Islam or, or Karl Marx? Or, or was, it, was it Buddhism or atheism that motivated them to, to do this, lay down their lives? You'll find in their primary documents, signers like Theodore Wright wrote the, this, blessed be God for the principles of the gospel, the teachings of Jesus. Were it not for these and for the fact that a better day is dawning, I would not wish to live. But blessed be God for the anti-slavery movement. Blessed be God, there is a war waging with slavery. Reverend Wright worked alongside pastors like Elijah Lovejoy. He was a newspaper editor. He was a pastor too, bivocational. And like a lot of abolitionists, Lovejoy used both his pulpit and his pen to denounce slavery, declared it a sin, and he called out slave owners as anti-Christ. Can I tell you something? It cost him dearly. Pro-slavery mobs attacked Lovejoy's home. You can see a lithograph of it there. Destroyed his printing press three times, burned it down, but Lovejoy would rebuild it, burn it, re-rebuild it. They'd burn it, he'd rebuild it. He would not quit the fight. And so on the fourth time, the mob came and actually shot him with a shotgun five times in the chest and killed him. And in response to death threats, Lovejoy had written, I am governed by higher considerations than either the favor or fear of man. I am impelled to the course I've taken because I fear God. Do you fear God? Oh, man. Do you understand the moral courage of these Christ followers transformed by God's word? They were all in committed to the cause, committed to Christ. Guys, time out. I had to ask myself, as I'm studying this stuff, am I that committed? Like, would I lay down my life for my brother? Guys, these fearless Christians, they would go out and they'd paint their towns with posters like this. Look at this one. I don't know what weakness may come over me, but I don't believe I shall ever deny my Lord, Master Jesus Christ. And I should deny him if I denied my principles against slavery. Again, guys, these are not, they're not, these are historical artifacts. You can research them in any university library. They'd put up posters like this one. Look at this one. What is life or rest to me? So long as I hold a commission direct from God Almighty to act against slavery. I'm just telling you, if you look at the evidence across history, you will see a pattern of committed Christians sacrificing everything for racial justice and human freedom. They wrote dozens of books that swayed Northerners to join the fight. You can read more in Dickinson's book. Books with titles like, these are kind of fun, look at this. The Bible Against Slavery. Like, can you make it any more clear? How about this one? The Testimony of God Against Slavery. Or this one, this has the longest subtitle I've ever heard. An Anti-Slavery Manual. An Examination in the Light of the Bible and of Facts into the Moral and Social Wrongs of American Slavery with a Remedy for the Evil. <laughs> you can't quite fit that in a tweet. <laughs> it's written by John Fee. He's a pastor. Again, guys, you can go check out these documents and historical artifacts for yourself in any library university. Here's a picture of Reverend John Rankin. He started as a pastor in Kentucky. 
And he got up in front of his church and he said, slavery is evil. And y'all need to set your slaves free. You know what they did? They ran him out of town. They didn't do what Jesus said. It was one of those Christian churches in name only. Plenty of, plenty of Christians have given Jesus a black eye down through history. They have used scripture as a battering, as a, uh, to bludgeon people, to weaponize it. But they weren't actually following Jesus' words, and they cared more about their plantations. And so Reverend Rankin sold everything he had in Kentucky, and he moved to the other side of the Ohio River, because in Ohio, slavery was legal. And he actually built his house, as a picture of it, overlooking the Ohio River as a safe house on the Underground Railroad. You guys know the Underground Railroad? It was a network of mostly churches and the homes of Christians where slaves who were escaping the South could stand their journey to freedom in the North. And there are dozens of true stories about Reverend Rankin looking out that window in the winter months when the river was frozen over. And he would see slaves with children in their arms scrambling barefoot across the ice. And Reverend Rankin would light that lantern that you see right there to give them a beacon of hope. I'm lighting the way to Christ. And he'd run down and he'd help them cross and, and bring them into his home. And he would feed them. And he would clothe them. Because he believed in Jesus Christ, who said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Incredible, guys. The word of God is powerful when it's taken to heart. Maybe the most famous conductor on the Underground Railroad was Harriet Tubman. She's one of my heroes. I love Harriet Tubman. She escaped from slavery herself, but she risked her life to go back to the South and help others escape to freedom through the Underground Railroad. And Tubman was such a fierce follower of Christ that she was known to actually stop and pray in the woods and ask Jesus for direction about which way to go while being pursued by dogs and by horses. Again, this isn't like myth or legend, guys. This is historical fact. In fact, here's one of Tubman's written prayers for her slave master. Oh, dear Lord, she wrote, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I went to the horse trough to wash my face and took up dewater in my hands. And I said, oh, Lord, wash me, make me clean. I can't pray no more for poor old master. Now, obviously, Tubman's slave master was not a Christian. Again, even though there were corrupt slavers in the South who claimed to be Christian, and they would twist Bible verses to justify slavery. Understand this, time out. In every generation, there are imposter Christians, in name only. But Tubman prayed for her master to convert to true Christianity. In fact, Tubman had a nickname. You guys know her nickname? Moses. They named her after the Old Testament hero who led his people out of bondage to Pharaoh to freedom in the promised land. And at the end of Tubman's life, she, died, she lived to 91 years old, just a miracle. Tubman prayed these words. She said, her final words, give my love to all the churches. Those are on the Underground Railroad. I go to prepare a place for you and where I am, ye may be also. If you know your Bible, she is quoting Jesus Christ who said those exact words. It's beautiful to know to, when I think about that, that Harriet Tubman, all these heroes of the faith, guys, you and I are going to meet one day in the kingdom of heaven, which is prepared for all who follow Jesus. Amen? 
I can't wait to meet Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and, and so many others who helped make Jesus' promise in Luke 4 come true. I want to read it together, church, one more time. These are the powerful words. Jesus said this. Let's say it together. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, you and I serve a God who has been proclaiming freedom from sin and slavery from the very beginning of the Bible. Starting in the Old Testament with Moses, all the way to Jesus in the New Testament. And you have to understand, where you and I live right now, these last 200 years, this little bit of time that we're standing in, it is the exception in world history. For thousands of years, slavery and oppression was the norm. Freedom is the exception. But you and I have lived to see part of the fulfillment of what Jesus predicted. And these Christ followers sacrificed their lives for it. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not trying to whitewash history. The fight for justice continues today. We have miles and miles to go, amen? In fact, it probably won't be complete until Jesus himself returns. But just, just zoom out for a minute and look at the global impact, friends. As Martin Luther King once said, I'll finish with a quote from one of his sermons. He said, if we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer that never came down to earth. If we are wrong, justice is a lie. Love has no meaning. And we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. It gives you chills, doesn't it? Does that sound familiar to you? You're like, man, what a poetic preacher. <laughs> if you know scripture, it should sound familiar. It's a direct quote from Amos chapter 5. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The river is coming. I hope you'll jump in it. I think we all know, man, there's a ton of work to be done on the journey to true justice. If Jesus' vision of freedom and racial equality is to be fully realized, not just in America, but around the globe. Guys, did you know this? Saudi Arabia didn't outlaw slavery until 1962. Like what? India didn't outlaw slavery until 1976. And even though legalized and open slavery has been abolished in all modern nations, human trafficking of women and children today still happens every day around the world. The International Labor Organization estimates at any given time, there are an estimated 40 million people in modern slavery. It's human trafficking mostly affects women and children. It's $150 billion a year industry. It is big business. And thankfully, dozens of activist groups are fighting to end modern slavery. And surprise at the forefront are Christian organizations like International Justice Mission, IJM, which employs Christ followers. They, they use legal pressure. They work with law enforcement to bring children and families to safety and freedom. If you're interested in that, guys, you can get involved at IJM.org. You can even help fund modern-day slavery rescue operations. What's the point? The story continues. God's inviting you into it. If you call yourself a Christian, a committed Christian, the only thing you cannot be is complacent. In the words of William Wilberforce, is it not the glory of Christianity to set the captives free? Whether you are a believer or you're a skeptic, hear that invitation from God. My prayer is that you will join the justice generation Join the movement that has the best track record of changing the world so that you can 
personally be set free by Jesus Christ and then follow him wherever he leads. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we proclaim freedom in Jesus' name. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, Lord, I pray as these words fall on your people, fall in their hearts, Father God. I pray for people who have had questions and doubts, who, Father, they need to be set free right now, that they would even speak those words to you. If you're not a Christian and you're like, man, the evidence is so compelling, God's speaking to me. You could simply say, Jesus, set me free. Come into my heart. Forgive my sins. I turn from them. I want to join your movement. Change my life so I can help you change the world. Father God, we thank you that the kingdom of God is advancing and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. We love you, Lord. We pray for more freedom, justice, and equality in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group, outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening.